0: There's two adoptions laid out in Romans chapter 8, and that's really the theme of that chapter, showing you that the day you got saved, you were adopted spiritually into God's family. We looked at two great examples of that. I showed you in Galatians chapter 4 how He uses the allegory of Ishmael and Isaac, Hagar and Sarah, a bondwoman and a free woman, and how it shows you and I that we're not under bondage anymore once we get saved. And then we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 9, and... My goodness, one of the greatest chapters anywhere in the Bible that that illustrates that adoption spiritually, and that was in the great story of Mephibosheth, whose name means breathing shame, who was the enemy of David, but yet God, uh, through His mercy, brought Mephibosheth into David's family as his own son. And we saw last week how that illustrates your life and my life as far as the first adoption. But there's so much in here, and I want to go back to Romans chapter 8, we're going to begin reading at verse 15 again, and we probably, well, I can guarantee you we won't get past 16 today, but let's look what it says here. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now that's where we were last week, and we looked at the uh, two aspects. We looked at the, uh, the fact that we have not received the spirit of bondage, and we talked about that, and then we talked about the spirit of adoption, and we laid that out. Now today, verse 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, Father, we thank and praise You uh, for the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord, uh, we love You so much, and thank You for all that You've done for us and all that You've given us. Lord, there is so much today that needs to be said. And Lord, so little time to say it in. And Lord, I pray You'll help me today to give me clarity of thought in the approach that I take today and, and help uh, these folks that are that are trying to learn their Bible and walk uh, in the Spirit of God, help me to help them, Lord, in everything, uh, to give them the, uh, that, that everything that they need. Help me, Father, to lay it out and be clear and plain in what we talk about. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, one of the greatest tools in dealing with people and working in ministry in general is found in verse 16. And it's probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible that really lay out for you and for me what the Holy Spirit of God does in our lives. Now, I don't know uh, if you know this or not, but, you know, every subject in the Bible has a, a definitive passage. Sometimes it's a definitive chapter. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you want a subject in the Bible that you want to really find the bottom line on, you want to get everything out that really defines it so you can begin to understand it, you're going to find that there is a definitive passage. Sometimes it'll be a definitive verse. Many times it'll be a definitive chapter. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit of God, when it comes to the Holy Spirit of God, the definitive chapter on understanding and grasping the, uh, the concept of the Holy Spirit of God is found in John chapter 16. And John chapter 16 is, is one of the great places in the Bible that you're going to ever get into when you begin to lay it out. Now, it goes without saying that the greatest trick of the devil, you can turn to John chapter 16, we're going to get there in a minute. Now, it goes without saying that the greatest trick of the devil wants to pull on people is simply the art of deception. And that's what he does better than anything else in the world. He deceives unsaved people, and yes, unfortunately, many times he deceives God's people. And you're going to find that the devil is so close to the original thing that it's sometimes that it's almost almost virtually impossible to discern what it is that's taking place and people get deceived by that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, it says, Take heed that no man deceive you. And then it talks about many false prophets and many false teachers coming along the line that will deceive you. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 is another great passage where it says that the devil was transformed into an angel of light. The devil who we think of, you know, with horns and a pitchfork and uh, always involved in the corruptible, damnable things of world and the life. That, but here's a place where it tells you that the devil's main sphere, his main place where he operates is religion. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Why? That through that he can deceive people. 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, is another great passage. It uh, it talks about the fact that when the devil deceived Eve and the devil got Eve to, to bring sin upon all mankind, the Bible says that Eve was deceived in the transgression. He deceived her. He deceived her. And yet we know that There's a coming time when the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition is going to come to this world and he's going to uh, take over this world right before the coming of the Lord. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 that even uh, when he does show up that he's going to deceive all the world. The whole world's going to believe him. And of course it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that deception beginning to be unfolded as we even speak today across the world and across our country. Now, unfortunately, God's people get deceived just like unsaved people. The devil uses the same tactics for God's people as he does for unsaved people. But fortunately for the child of God, there is a way to keep from being deceived. God has given us a way that we can never be deceived by anything or anybody. And boy, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 begins to talk about that. And begins to lay it out. Romans chapter eight, verse sixteen. Right before we get to uh, uh, John chapter sixteen, says this: "The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God." And I want to talk to you today about one of the greatest tools you have to keep you and I from ever being deceived, and it's called the witness of the Spirit. I want to show you today how to what the witness of the Spirit means in your life. I want to define it for you, I want to then show you how you use it in everyday life that you keep from being deceived. And uh, the first thing I want you to see is is look at verse 16 there. Verse 16 says, the Spirit itself. Now there's where the Spirit of God is found in a neuter form, and you need to understand these things. Whenever you find in your Bible that it talks about the Holy Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, The context of that passage is going to be the person of the Holy Spirit of God, who He is. Whenever you find the Holy Spirit addressed in the form of the Holy Ghost, it's always going to be a reference in the context of the indwelling Spirit of God in you. But when you find the Holy Spirit of God is in a neuter form, here it's itself. Other places you'll find just the word it. It will never be dealing with the person, It will never be dealing with the context of the indwelling, but it will be always dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God is one of the, as I said, is one of the great uh, studies in the Bible, and the defining chapter on it is in John chapter 16. This chapter defines the work of the Holy Spirit of God that will take place after uh, uh, the book of Acts when Christ goes back. And this, this is a great passage. It says in verse 7, I'm just going to read a portion of it here. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they believe not in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He he shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you uh, things to come. He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine, and shall show it unto you. Verse 15, All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore, said I, he that, uh, uh, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now, at some point in your, in your studies, you need to mark these seven things in this chapter. These are the seven things that are part of the work of the Holy Spirit of God once He comes and indwells you. And we know that from the Bible, that when Jesus is talking about this in John chapter 16, He's talking about in future events. What He's saying is this. He's saying, if I don't go back to heaven and ascend back to my Father, then the Holy Spirit of God is not going to come. And when the Holy Spirit of God does come, this is what He's going to do. Now let me take it just one step further. When Jesus Christ went back to heaven, and this will maybe answer a lot of questions for you. When Jesus Christ went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, if you notice very carefully, He replaced Himself with three things. Those three things are the key three things in your life and my life today. When He went back to heaven, the physical physical presence of God's Son ascended up, Acts chapter 1, and went back to heaven. He replaced Himself on this earth with three things. The first thing that he replaced himself with is the Holy Spirit of God. That's what John chapter 16 is all about. We're going to talk about those seven things in just a second. That's the first thing he replaced himself with. At the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the believers. And that was the fulfillment of John chapter 16. The second thing that he he replaced himself with was the Word of God. By 90 A.D., John writes the last books of the Bible, and now the Bible's complete. Where when Christ came the first time, and Paul was doing his work and his ministry the first time, they had a complete Old Testament, but the New Testament wasn't completed yet. But a time, 90 A.D. rolls around, and John now is on the Isle of Patmos, where he dies as a martyr's tradition says he did, and uh, he writes the last books of the Bible. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he writes the book of Revelation. Now, at that point, we have not only a complete Old Testament, but we have a complete New Testament. The Bible's complete. You see, the Bible says that claim for itself that it's God's mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. What's he talking about? Christ isn't here right now. No, He's not here right now, but He gave us a book that is His mind, that every thought that God has is in this book. That's what He had to do. He had to replace Himself with the Spirit. He had to replace Himself with the Word. And then the third thing that He replaced Himself with is the local church. And we find in the book of Acts a transition taking place where we find by the time Paul comes on the scene in Acts chapter 9, we find that uh, he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and he really kicks off the beginning of the church age, where in the Old Testament, they didn't meet like this. They met in synagogues. Even in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they met in synagogues. Ah, but in the book of Acts, something changes. What changed? I'll tell you what changed. Instead of meeting in a synagogue, which was only exclusively for Jews. Now, Gentiles, you and me, People like you and I from every walk of life that are Gentiles who once before could never be part of the Jewish system unless we enter into that proselyte system that they had. Now we meet in churches like this. Open up the Bible and we don't talk about the law. We don't talk about the Old Testament things we have to, that they did. Now we talk about the grace of God, Christ's death on the cross and we spread the good news, the gospel to all the other Gentiles that are out there. Something changed. And what you have, basically, if you want to to grasp the concept of this, when Christ went back to heaven, it took three things to replace Him. It took, one, it took the Holy Spirit of God. Two, it took this Bible, which gives us the revelation of God. And three, it took the church. You see, we are His replacement. You and I. Did you ever notice where Jesus said to the disciples? He said, greater things will you do than I've done. Did you ever analyze that statement? Now really, how how could you and I do greater things than Jesus did? The answer to that is, He only had a ministry of three years. He only ministered for three years, from when He was 30 to when He was crucified at 33. When he was 33 years of old, God reached down and took his life off the planet. And when God reached down and took his life off the planet, you know what he did? He says, I don't need him to finish the work that I sent him to do. You know why? Because you and I were going to finish that work. We're his replacement. And that's why he gave us the same spirit that Christ had. He gave us the same mind that Christ had. And that's why we are called as the church the body of Christ. We are His replacement. And when you grasp that and understand that, you get a better grasp of why the Holy Spirit of God and understanding how it works in your life is so important. Now, there are seven things that the Holy Spirit of God does. This is His work. First of all, He's called the Comforter. You want comfort in your life? Then you get these seven things working in your life. Are you you tired of the turmoil in your life? Oh, your time of the ups and the downs, and and people come in all the time that have had that have had uh, some tough times in life, and they've had some through some consequences and some problems that they have to work through. And once they get into the Bible, and once they get the Bible working for them, and they get to the grounded in the Bible, and they get these things working in their lives, and I know it can be hectic and tedious for a short time till you learn how to do it, but once you learn it and you understand what the Spirit of God does for you, uh, that's where the comfort comes in, and that comfort leads to the peace that passes all understanding, that keeps our hearts and minds, as the Bible says. Well, the first things, all, first three really are found in verse 8. The first thing the Holy Spirit of God does is reprove the world of sin. Well, we don't have to explain that. It convicts the world that we are sinners. The second thing it does is reproves the world of righteousness, And the third thing that it does in verse 8, reproves the world of judgment. Somebody said, now what does that mean? Here's what it means. First of all, it talks about the fact that He reproves the world of sin. God makes it very clear through the Holy Spirit of God that that there's sin in this world, and you're either one of two camps. You're either a saved person or you're a sinner, one or the other. Now we know that people will want to deceive themselves. We know that because the Bible says the devil deceives And you know there's a lot of people running around the world today that don't believe in God, they don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in going to church, they don't believe in any of those things. And the bottom line is when it says he reproves the world of righteousness and reproves the world of judgment, here's what he's saying. He's saying even though a man denies God, Even though a man or a woman denies God and the things of God, the bottom line is, down inside them, because the Holy Spirit of God is dealing with them and working with them, they know, even though outwardly they talk about the fact that they don't believe inside the Holy Spirit of God, just beating them up. There isn't a religion on this world, whether it's true or it's false. There isn't a a religion, there isn't a teaching, there isn't a philosopher anywhere in life that doesn't believe that someplace, somewhere, somehow, it's all going to come down and you're going to have to give an account of what you do. They all may believe differently. They all may believe wrong. But everybody knows that it's going to be payday someday. I don't care what you believe. And that is because the Holy Spirit of God Ingrains in us that because he was sinless and because he came down and lived a sinless life. Oh, the contrast is too great. And he not only reproves the world of sin, but he reproves the world of righteousness and he reproves the world of judgment. You know that you're going to get it, whether you admit it or not, someday. And the reason why I know this is true, the reason why I know this is true. Because every unsaved man, every unsaved man, and a lot of saved people too, but every unsaved man, every other word out of his mouth is a, is a phrase that deals with his eternal damnation. I had an atheist one time said, I don't believe in God, and every other word out of his mouth was God damn this or God damn that. And I'm saying to myself, and I said to him, well, if you don't believe, why would you use a name that you don't even believe is in existence as a curse word I mean, isn't that kind of stupid? You don't believe in God, but you want to use His name? I believe in God, and I use His name. Not the way you do, but the bottom line is, I use it because I believe it. You know why He uses it in a derogatory way? Because deep down inside, He believes it too. He believes it too. You cannot get away from it. He reproves the world of sin. He reproves the world of righteousness, and He reproves the world of judgment. That in verse 13, the fourth thing that He does. Howbeit, when the Spirit of truth uh, is come, he shall guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, uh, he that he speaketh, and he will show you things to come. Alright, the next thing the Holy Spirit of God does, it shows you prophecy. It shows you what's going to happen before it happens. And boy, I could spend an hour just on this, but we don't have time. The next thing in the same verse, in the first part of the verse The Holy Spirit of God is going to lead and to guide you into all truth. Now, I love that part of that verse. You know, it didn't say some truth. It didn't say just truth. It made it very clear that He's going to lead and guide you into all truth. Not just truth, all truth. Not some of the truth, not a little bit of the truth. The Holy Spirit of God, because He is truth, will lead and guide you into all truth. Verse 14, the sixth thing. He speaks not of His own. The Holy Spirit of God never takes any credit for anything. He exists really for one reason, and that is to glorify Christ and glorify God. Then the seventh thing, and here it is. This is what we want to get to. This is where we're going to camp for a while here when we put this thing in together when we get into Romans chapter 8 when it says, The Spirit itself beareth with what our spirit that we are the children of God. Here's what He says. Verse 15, All things that the Father hath are Mine. Therefore, said I... That he shall make take of mine and shall show it unto you. You know what he just told you? Verse 15 says that he'll show you what's really of God and what's really not of God. Do you know how valuable that is? Once you realize that the devil's main sphere is religion and the devil's main sphere is deception, and that he wants to deceive the whole world and he will and he has. He wants to deceive unsaved people, and he has, and he wants to deceive many of God's people, and he's accomplished that. To have a verse that tells me that the Holy Spirit of God will show me what really is of God. Christ said, all that God has is mine, and I'm going the Spirit of God is going to take that, and he's going to show it unto you. You know what he's saying? He's going to show you in your life in every decision you've got to make, in every circumstance you find yourself in, in every scenario you can imagine, He's going to show you what is really of God and what is really not of God. Man, what a deal that is. Now, in the Bible, this is called discernment and discretion in the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. The tragedy is that in most cases, these seven workings of the Holy Spirit of God, not to mention the last one, are completely unknown to the average child of God, and that's why it's so easily for God's people to be deceived. I'll tell you, I have never seen it in, in the 35-some years of my ministry, spanning uh, two of the greatest periods of church history. I have never seen a time like it is today, where God's people are so deceived in what they believe, and deceived, and, and many times they have deceived themselves, but it's an incredible thing. Now, the day you got saved, and we know what I'm about to say from Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. We've studied it. The day you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit of God. You got all the Holy Spirit of God there is. There's nothing more you can get. You got everything that God had inside you in the Holy Ghost as the Holy Spirit of God took up residency inside your body. We know that. He lives inside you, and His job through the Word of God, is daily to perfect you. We know that now. We know that. At the same time, the Bible. We know the Bible to be God's complete revelation of God and His plan and His mind, which was also now written by the Spirit of God. Here's how this thing works. Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, follow me so far. The Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. The day you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residency inside you, known as the Holy Ghost. He does seven things in your life. And now what you've got here, when you begin to realize this, that the Holy Spirit of God in you and the book that God gave you will bear witness in your life between the Spirit of God that's in you and the Word of God that's here that they both wrote that will tell you what's right and what's wrong. It's one of the greatest keys in in, in making decisions in your life. It's absolutely one of the greatest aspects to have in dealing with people and not being deceived because people will try to deceive you. Now, I I have a number of you that work with me in different areas, you know, a problem, uh, people come in in counseling. And many of them, let's face it, many of them come in, they're fed up with the world. Many of them, they're the blessing of this world to work with. They've been in a dark time and they got saved or they got back with God and somebody orchestrated getting them back where the Spirit of God could get into their life. They come into church, and I'm not saying they don't struggle, but boy, they want to do what's right and they are tired of the lifestyle that they've had. Praise God. I love it when it comes in and it happens that way. But you and I both know that that's not always the case. And you have worked with me with people this past year. You've worked with me with people some of you uh, uh, since we started our church. And you know that uh, that's not always the way that it works. Uh, you're going to find people who, who don't want to, uh, they, they, they want to try to deceive you. They want to put the facade on that they're doing what's right when they're not doing what's right. And uh, it's an incredible thing. And what happens is this, and this is how you begin to understand this. Because there's a couple of things you need to know. Uh, my, one of my favorite videos on tel- television is the, is the and, and it doesn't, it's not on on a regular thing, but I love to watch it. When I see it's coming on, I'll block everything out because I want to watch it. It's that thing on the most stupid criminals. <laughs> I think that is the greatest thing in the whole wide world. My favorite one is this surveillance camera in a 7-Eleven in a or a convenience store. And the crook is going to come down through the ceiling. Oh, you've seen it too? And you're watching this video camera, and all of a sudden you see a few chunks of plaster fall. Then you see this fall, and then you see uh, some of the struts in the ceiling come down. Then all of a sudden, (laughs) this guy falls through the hole of the ceiling, lands on a shelf, bakes, I don't know how he didn't break his back, flops over and is completely unconscious on the floor. And when he wakes up, the cops are standing there putting the handcuffs on him, and, and he tried to break in through the ceiling. I don't know how he fell through the hole, but he fell 10 or 12, 15 feet, and he landed on a shelf and busted himself up and laying unconscious when they come in this morning, and they, and they, they locked him up and sent him to jail. Now, to me, that's the world's stupidest criminal. I love those things. I love those things. I loved another one where a guy was hiding up in the attic, and he wouldn't come down, and the police... Police didn't know if he was up there or not. And, you know, And they, they searched the house, couldn't find him, and he's, he's got a crawl space up there. And the, the guy's stupid because he thinks, oh, they're in the house. If I'm real quiet, they won't look up in the attic. Now, this guy won the award hands down, for far as I'm concerned. And I love it. And the policemen are up there saying, hey, we're going to give you a chance to come down. We know you're up there. They're not sure he's up there, but they're pretty sure he's up there. Now, no cop in his right mind is going to stick his head up to see if he's up there. But I love what he does. And a guy gave him, cops give him warning. He says, hey, we're going to give you one more chance to come down, and then we're going to send the dog up. Now, this was my favorite part, because I love dogs. This German shepherd weighed 900 pounds. He was a monster. And you know how police dogs are. They live to bite you. If they don't bite somebody in a day, they're bummed. They have one goal in life as a police dog. Tear you a new one. That's all they want to do. They want you to run. When you're, when you're, hand, when you're standing in there questioning you and the guy's got his police dog down there, you think he's saying, "woof, woof." He's saying, run, 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 <laughs> run, 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 run. Cop isn't going to chase you. He certainly can't shoot you. In the old days, they used to shoot you. Can't shoot you. Go get it. That dog says, mm-hmm, and off he goes. And I don't care how fast you can run, you ain't going to unrun him. You got two legs, he's got four, dummy. Four to two is twice as fast. I can finish that poem and he's going to, but I'm not going to go there. But, 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 but he's, he, and, and I love it. It took two police officers, big guys, to pick this dog up. And I mean, is in a crawl space, you know? And they got this dog up, and this dog is raring to go, and they put this dog up there. Now nobody still knows if the guy's up there or not. The dog knows he's up there. <laughs> and by this time, the dog says, "I don't care if he's up there or not. I'm going to find somebody and bite him." <laughs> and I love it. They put that dog, get that dog to rear end, and they're pushing him up in that crawl space. And all you hear for a moment is silence, and then, uh-huh. whoa. You hear this guy screaming, get this dog off me, get this dog off me, get this dog off me. He's the, he won the dumbest criminal award. He thought the cops would come in search the house, and the cops would say, there's a crawl space up there. Ah, oh, he wouldn't be up there. Let's go get some donuts. <laughs> no, they said, well, they did. The dog's name was Donuts. <laughs> I love it. I say that to say this. If there was a ward for stupidity in Christianity, it would be a lot like the stupid criminal. It would be the people that come in who want to serve God and want to say they want to do what's right with God but have a deception. Bottom line is this. You can fake a lot of things as a Christian. You can lie to your wife. You can lie to your husband. You can lie to your kids. Your kids can lie to you. You can lie to each other. You can lie to me. But there's one person you can't lie to, and it's the Holy Spirit of God. And I tell people all the time, you can fake a lot of things in life. What you cannot fake is being filled by the Spirit of God. You cannot. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to to fake the fact that you're right with God when you're not. And when somebody tries to deceive, and you've seen them come in this year. We've worked with several of them. Who are no longer with us today? You've worked with several of them. They came in at a dubious background. They wanted to do what's right. They said this. They did that, and they said all the right things. But once you began to work with them, you began to see that there was a deception that was being played out. And I tell people all the time: you can fake as a child of God a lot of things, but you can't fake taking a right. Uh, you can't fake a right spirit with God when it's not right. And I'll tell you why that is. Because there's such a contrast. I'll tell you, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the flesh are never going to get together. And a shout of God thinking that they will, you're unakin to the world's dumbest criminals. If you think that walking in the flesh is kin to walking in the Spirit, and you think that you're good enough to do one and fake the other, huh, you need to be up there in the 7 with a guy coming through the ceiling. You're crazy. The difference is contrast. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, If any man love God, the shame is known of him. If you love God, it shows in everything that you do. We talked the other night in the Song of Solomon when we were coming through that great book. And I showed you there in 5.15, chapter 5, verse 15, how the, how the, about the countenance. We went through all the characteristics that the church, the bride should have in a relationship with Christ. You can't fake those. You can't fake having a, having a happy countenance when you're, when, you're, when you're not happy on the inside. One of my favorite verses is back there in Psalms. And it, it's about the, when the children of Israel are taken in captivity. And they're down there along the river of Babylon. They've lost everything. They've lost their homes. Many of them have lost their families. They've lost their God. They've lost their, the Bible. They've lost everything. They violated what God gave them. They threw it out the window and now God brought down Nebuchadnezzar who put him in chains, killed Zedekiah, killed his kids, put him in slavery, took him down by the river Sebar, Ezekiel chapter 1, and there they lived for the rest of their lives as captives away from God, away from their families. The Babylonians come down in this great verse in Psalms and they say to them, why don't you sing us Sing for us one of those great songs of Zion. Why don't you sing for us, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Come on, give us a rendition. Why don't you sing for us, My Jesus, I love thee, I know art art mine. And they come down and they merely mock them. They say, why don't you sing one of us great songs of Zion? And know what the answer is? How can we sing the songs of the Lord when we're captive in this land? The answer is, you can't. You can't. You can't fake it. You can't. You just can't. You just can't. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 13, Psalm 46, Psalm 105. I mean, it's all there. Your countenance is the greatest giveaway, especially when you were once on fire for God. When you were once on, that's the story, great story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel started out pretty good. But along the line, when they brought their sacrifices, the Bible says that God had respect under Abel's and not under Cain. And you know what happened at that point? Cain got an attitude toward God. And the Bible says the moment he got an attitude, God comes up and he, and he, and he says the, the first words out of his mouth. A great key in dealing with people. First words out of his mouth, God to Cain. Why has thy countenance fallen? You, we, you can tell by the countenance. What's going on spiritually inside. And you know what it led to in Genesis chapter 4? You said it led to killing Cain and Abel. Well, more, Cain, kill and Abel. more than that, it led to Cain leaving the presence of the Lord. I'm telling you. The Bible says, If any man love God, the same is known to him. You see, there's some characteristics that go along with loving somebody. And if they're not there... You can, you have deceived yourself. You can kid yourself. You can buy you a big old, a big old sign along the road. Those billboards that says, "My name is so and so, and I really love God." Doesn't change a thing. Doesn't change a thing. Not only is countenance important when you look at all this, but attitude. My favorite story in the Bible on attitude is in 1 Kings chapter 22, really the whole chapter, and I don't have time to get into it this morning. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know it's the great story of, of Jehoshaphat, Ahab, and Micaiah. And to me, it's one of, the, one of the greatest stories anywhere in the Bible, and I just, I just love to read it every time I can. Because you've got all the elements. You see, Ahab was the king of Israel. Now, there was a time when he was younger that Ahab was okay. But as he got older, he got less okay. And by the time we find him here in 1 Kings chapter 22, he's a long way from God. He's a wicked king, one of the wickedest kings that Israel ever have. And he has a guy in his, in his kingdom by the name of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat's a pretty good guy. We get our phrase, jumping Jehoshaphat, we get it from that little story here. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but uh, that's where it comes from. Then you have Micaiah. Micaiah is the prophet of the Lord. Now, Jehoshaphat does exactly what we do when we get out of fellowship with God. You know what he does? He doesn't like to hear truth. And what he does in his case, because he's the king and it's nice to be the king, he builds around him 400 prophets. You know what those 400 prophets primarily do? Those 400 prophets primarily tell Ahab, what he wants to hear. That's their only job. Their only job is to tell him what he wants to hear, not what he doesn't want to hear. So they're in a little straight here in this chapter, and I love it. It shows his attitude. And what happens is, Jehoshaphat comes in, and the king is kind of upset, and he says, hey look, he says, uh, uh, "We. this is what my 400 prophets uh, are, are saying. And Jehoshaphat he's not buying it exactly he may not be where he needs to be but he knows this isn't right and he says to the king very cautiously well King I know you have your 400 guys and they're telling you what you say and you're telling you but do you think there's anybody out there that's a prophet of the Lord that we can inquire of in other words Jehoshaphat not he ain't buying these 400 guys he knows what's going on and I love the response Ahab says, yeah, there's one, Micaiah, but I hate him. Woo! Read the rest of the verse. You know why I hate him? Because he, he prophesies no good thing concerning me. See? When you get into that state, when people come in and they get into that state, oh, it's fine for a while, but let me tell you something. I told you last year that this year would be the year in the Bible. We talked about it Thursday night. I told you that after four or five years, the, the newness wears off, the excitement wears off, and by this time, you find out who's got the longevity to go the distance, and who starts to fall by the wayside. We have people come in, they want to be excited, they want, and it lasts about three or four weeks. Why? Because they get deceived. And how do you keep from getting deceived and all that? Someday down the line, some of you boys are going to pastor, and you're going to have a church, and you'll have a church, hopefully like this one, where you have Tremendously good amount of good people. But you're gonna be faced with the same issues, and you're gonna have the same problems that this church faces, the same problem that every church faces, and the same problem that faced all the way down through the Bible. And you're gonna to have to keep from being deceived. Ah, oh, Micaiah. One of my favorite verses. They go to Micaiah and they want to get Micaiah, and Jehoshaphat tries to run the distance, and he tries to get him to say something. And, on, and, and in 2214, my favorite verse in the Bible, in fact, this Bible here is my preaching Bible. I have 300 sermons in here. I have another one just like it that's got another 300, maybe 400 in it. This Bible is Nick beat up, scratched, this Bible been everywhere in the world. This is my first real preaching Bible. This is not my study Bible, this is my preaching Bible. I never take that when I preach. My study by when I preach. I can't afford to lose it, can't afford to beat it up. I gotta give it longevity as long as I can. But this one, you can see the scars. This thing's been through some wars. This thing, this thing's used as a shield when people threw rocks at me when I used to preach on the street. This thing used to, this just it's been, it's been spit on, scuffed on. One time guy knocked it out of my hands and stepped on it and crashed it in the ground because he didn't like what I was saying. And those were my deacons. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> When I started to preach, the first story I heard about was old Micaiah. Micaiah has always been one of my heroes. And what he said in 1 Kings twenty two fourteen 14 has always impacted my life. You know what he said? He said, as the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. He didn't care who liked it and who didn't like it. And as a young man, that impressed me. And I'm nowhere in the character of Micaiah. There have been many times I put my tail between my legs and I took the, uh, took, the, the, took the short route. But the bottom line is this. He never did. And the bottom line to me is this. When I started to preach, I had that verse embossed on the front of this Bible. And on the front of this Bible it says, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Because the bottom line is this. This book and the Spirit of God that wrote it and the Spirit of God is in you. The two of them together are the only thing that are going to keep you from being deceived. And you're going to find in dealing with people that people are going to come to the point where, uh, uh, like I say many, many times, you can fake a lot of things in life, but you cannot fake the Spirit of God in your life when He's not there and ruling and reigning in your life. Now, I'm going to give you another verse to tie into what we've already said because we're building a progression here. Turn back to 1 John chapter 4. Oh, here's another great one. Here's another great one. First John chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> Look at verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby we know, ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come into the flesh is not of God. And here it comes, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, even now already it is in the world. Now, primarily, so you get the whole weight of this verse, <coughs> this great verse. Primarily, or we should say, doctrinally. <coughs> this verse is dealing with the cults that we find today. And you'll find that <coughs> the spirit that false religions put forth, one of the ways that you, you, you can smell them out and know that they have the spirit of Antichrist is because all the cults <coughs> all do not believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Unity, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day, all of those groups that we classify as the cults, one of the things that they all have in common is that they do not believe that Jesus Christ was the deity of God in the flesh. They all believe that He was a recreated lesser God. They all deny the virgin birth. They all deny the fact that, uh, (coughs) that He was very God. They make Him a lesser God, a demagogue. But they don't make Him God Almighty incarnate in the flesh as we teach it and we know the Bible teaches. And that's that's what it's primarily for in its doctoral sense. But when you begin to look at it it, in a practical form, that spirit of Antichrist, that's not the Antichrist in general that we talk about in the Bible that comes at the end. And it leads to that. (coughs) But this spirit here is a spirit that's Antichrist. In other words, against Christ. That'd be a spirit of your flesh. That'd be a spirit of your flesh in a practical sense. And when you look at this and put it all together and you even understand it, you realize that for you and for me, many of God's people, many of God's people fall into this category. And I'm going to show you how to try the spirits in just a moment. I'm going to show you how that you take the Spirit and try the spirits based on Romans chapter 8, that His Spirit bears witness with our Spirit, so you never get deceived. But when you look at this, the first thing He says here is, Believe not every spirit. You don't believe what somebody says just because they say it. The Bible says you try the spirits. There is a process, and this is unknown to most God's people. There's a process by which you a, a, a person says this, or they do this, or they do that, or they, they, they sh- you see this in their life. And how do you keep from being sucked in? I'm going to show you in a few moments how to keep being, from being sucked in by me. I'm not going to show you everything, but I'm going to show you how you keep even from me. I put myself under this old microscope. Believe not every spirit. <coughs> and in a process to try the spirits whether to be of God or not. Why? Because many false prophets shall arise, and they're going to deceive you. The art as a child of God of having deception, or excuse me, a discernment and perception, and be able to perceive things the way they are. Now that verse says, <coughs> hereby we know that the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is of God. Now, the average Christian would say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I believe He comes in God. Hey, 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 what did it say? It says, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Now, let me ask you a question. And I don't want to show a hands, or I don't want any, any, anything to recognize you. I just look at it on your own inside. Bottom line is this. If that verse is true, and the verse says that we are to try the spirits, The Bible says we have the witness of the Spirit. The here Spirit bears witness with our Spirit that we are the sons of God. If we use the Spirit and try the Spirit and have the witness of the Spirit, and yet we're told not to believe every Spirit because the Spirit in a man that says Christ has not come in the flesh is not of God. What does that do for a child of God that says it but then lives his life like they don't ever believe it? You realize it's more, ladies and gentlemen? Do Do you realize, do you understand that Christianity is more than just saying it? We crack on the Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. Nobody likes Jehovah's Witnesses. I feel sorry for them. I don't like them, but I feel sorry for them. They get more bad press than anybody in the world. I know, I know, I know my mother, bless her heart, you know, when they'd come to the door in the early years, she'd throw hot water on them. I've known people to slam the doors in their face. I know people that just give them, what, four up one side and down the other? I'm not saying that you should. I wouldn't throw hot water on them. But I know they're a cult. But the bottom line is this. Are we really any better? You know what the main, or I guess would be the second issue? The first thing that the Jehovah Witnesses teach is they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. You know the second thing that they teach is their big doctrine? They don't believe there's a hell. They don't believe anybody's going to hell. They don't believe one person on this planet's going to hell. And that's usually the biggest stick that Baptists go after them on. But that being said, in the verse we have here, let me ask you a question. You may say, do you believe in hell? But when's the last time you weeped over somebody that you worked with that's lost and dying and going to hell? When's the last time you even get off your duff to go across the street and witness to somebody? You probably have people in your family right now that are lost without Christ and without and a chance to go to hell. And you might be the only person that can reach into their world and get them. It may be a tough reach and it may be an extended reach and it may take you a while. But you may be the only person that can reach them and God has orchestrated us. The problem is we're like Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't really believe there's a hell. So my point is this. What kind of spirit is in us if we say we believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but we don't live our lives like we do? You know what? If you believe that statement is true, if you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, if you believe that, that, then there's some things that you ought to be doing in your life, if you believe that, that go along with the plan that we talked about earlier that God used you to replace Himself with. If you really believed that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh and then you realized He went back, if you really believed that, you would know that you are His replacement and everything else in life is secondary and His goal is first. You see? That verse is a killer. I have never rewritten the Bible, but if I ever did, I'm leaving that verse out. That verse, is, that verse will get you every time. Now, what we are about, with that in mind, what we are about to look at <clears throat> will be invaluable to you in your life to keep you from being deceived. Now it says here, and the first part it says here is <clears throat> to try the spirits. How do we try the spirits? Now, first of all, make it very clear, we ain't talking about wine cooler, Jack Daniel, or Bud Light. I was down to Mission one time years ago, and I was down there, and a guy come up to me, and he was drunk as a skunk. And he looked at me, and he says, and I had just preached, and I preached on drinking that night. And he came up to me, and he said, preacher. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> he says, you know, you preached on drinking tonight, and you know that the Bible says it's okay to drink. And I said, okay. I said, where, where at? Where at? He said, well, the Bible says, over, he said, well, I'm not sure where it's at, but you know what's in there. He says, it's that place that says, it says, uh, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. I said, yeah, I know. And I said, and it says a little wine. You obviously blew that one. <laughs> and he actually said, well, the Bible says that we're to, we're, to, we're, to, we're to, he said, we're to drink the spirits. I said, no, we're to try the spirits, Claude, try the spirits. Say, I mean, it's crazy, crazy. I mean, you gonna be in a ministry, you've got to be half nuts. I mean, you deal with all kinds of people. But let me just say for all you out there that when it says, when we talk about how to try the spirits, we're not talking about those kind of spirits. (laughs) But I want you to understand the concept of trying the spirits through the witness of the spirit and that spirit bearing witness with your spirit. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of, you know what I think? I think some of you have already experienced this. You just didn't know it. Let me give you some real simple case studies. And I'm sure almost everybody in here, if you've been saved for at least a year or so, can probably identify with this. These are what I call case studies. Let's see if you can relate. Now, we're talking about how do we try the Spirit. Bible says that His Spirit, God's Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, I know I'm saved because the witness of the Spirit in God and the witness of the Spirit in me and in the Bible all lines the things up. It says that we're to try the Spirit. We're not to believe every Spirit. We are to try the Spirit. All right, let's talk about that. How do we try the spirits? Let's talk about that first. You ever been in a foreign country? You ever lived with a family that you can't even communicate with, that's saved? I was in Romania. I was in South America. I was in Africa. I've been in a number of countries in my little stint uh, as a Christian, and I, many times I've stayed with people in their homes where I was preaching in the church that did not speak English. And I'm going to tell you, there's a bond between them and you that you feel immediately. I can't speak to them. I can't, they can't speak to me. You know, you know but, but I, I can't explain it. And you almost have to experience it to understand what I'm saying. <coughs> because they're saved and the Holy Spirit of God is living in them, and because I'm saved and the Holy Spirit of God is living in me, the two spirits bear witness. I, I can't speak their language. They can't speak mine. But there's a, there's a, you can feel it in the room. You can feel it in the home. You can feel it in the presence. That there's something there that that I may not be able to speak their language. They can't speak mine. But we know we're one in Christ. Why? Because the Spirit in them and the Spirit in me is bearing witness that we are the children of God. Ever been in that scenario? Ever been to a bad church? Other than this one? Some of you boys went to Christmas Mass on Christmas Eve, didn't you? I know what's going on with you guys. I get all the intel. Father Shenanigans called me right after you left. (laughs) I used to do those things, but I don't have time to do them anymore. But did you feel the difference there that something wasn't right? You really want an experience? Go to a charismatic church sometime. I mean a real rock and rolling one. I mean, you want to you feel it, that's where you'll feel it. You want to really feel something ain't right, go to a unity church. You want to really feel something out of whack, go to a JW church. You'll find out why, when you're there, you'll find out why they don't. You ever notice that Jehovah's Witnesses churches, every church you ever saw, every Jehovah Witness church you ever saw in your life has no windows in it. There's a reason for that. Other than the fact that once you're in there, you will not escape through the window. <laughs> <laughs> you ever been in a bad church and, and, and you're sitting there and you just know it's all wrong. It's just like, uh, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit, it doesn't work. Here's a good one. You ever have a Christian who you thought was a good Christian? Try to get you to do something or go somewhere where deep down inside and, and, you, and you went. But deep down inside, you knew that it wasn't the right thing to do. Deep down inside, you just had this feeling that it wasn't exactly, and, and you just, but you, you gave in, you went anyhow. But, but you thought deep down in yourself, this is not what, a, I, I mean, I'm going here. I know this person's a Christian. This person is this. But you know what? This just doesn't strike me what a Christian ought to be doing. You ever been in that situation? Some of you have been saved two or three four years. You ever go back to the old places you used to hang out? You ever run into the old crowd that you used to hang out with? And when you get around that place or back in that place where once you used to have a time of your life, you used to have a ball, and your old friends, it was just everything, now you feel like you're completely out of place there. You try to talk to your old friends, you have nothing in common. Even the, even the simplest verbiage just doesn't work for you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just had a lesson on trying the spirits and the witness of the spirit. And you didn't even know it. Because the Bible is built on principles and the spirit of God operates by those principles. And when you have the spirit of God in you and you try to go up against something that is another spirit other than God, the red lights are going to go off. Now you may not have enough courage to say I ain't going. You may not have enough guts to stand up and say, and this isn't right, this is what we need to do. But the bottom line is, you know something isn't right. You feel it because the witness of the Spirit is chiding against another spirit. If you follow that, well, we're not not there yet. Don't let me get into that. You see, you have two spirits. We studied them so far. You have the Spirit of Christ, and you have the Spirit of the world or the Spirit of the flesh. Now, ladies and gentlemen, those two will never match up. You will never. World's dumbest criminal. You will never. You will never. You will absolutely never. You have deceived yourself. You You are totally off track. If you ever think, if you ever think that you can take a spirit that is of the flesh and a spirit of God and get a comprehensive, nice, warm, fuzzy feeling with the two of them you can't you can't ever been around a christian who once was on fire for god god was number one in their life and now they're way out in left field they get irritable whenever you talk about god at one time in their life god was the number one thing they loved to talk about god all they wanted to do was be around god and talk about god now you try to talk about god and it's like Micah. i hate you they can't. They, what, what they used to love is now becomes an irritation to them. The contrast between what they once were and what they are now, what they cared about the things of God then, and what they think about. I call them New York Christians. I hate New York City. How many? Anybody here in New York City? You. Well, I love you. You. I love you, but I hate New York City. New York City to me, I'm a Midwestern boy. Even before I lived here, I'm from Ohio. That's kind of Midwestern. People are nice here. I have never met a nasty person when I needed help with something in Kansas City. You go up to somebody and you say, hey, I'm lost. Not only will they help you, they'll give you gas money to get there. People here are nice. This is the Midwest, laid back. People are friendly. I guarantee you. You broke down on the freeway, and you got a flat tire, and it's at night. I guarantee you, unless it's a strange night, somebody will stop and help you fix that tire. New York City, they run over you. <laughs> I, I, I just can't. I, I, that's not me. I'm a people person. I love to help people. We were at the races last night, and there was a, a, the corn dog lady was there. <clears throat> there was a lady who was sitting up in the back, about halfway up drunk as a skunk, had the biggest corn dog you've ever saw in your life, chomping on it. And I'm looking up to her, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, you know. And she's sprawled out everywhere. I mean, she's just drunk. Eat the corn dog. And I, and I'm, and I go up the back because you can really see the races from the top up there, and I'm watching the races, and, you know, uh, your boy and 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 uh, uh, Kenzie was up there with me, and they were having a great time, you know, and the corn dog lady was about six, about halfway down, and she was out of it, man, she was absolutely out, I don't know where she got the booze, because I don't think they sold it there, she was drunk, but she had a fetish for corn dogs, you know, question about that, so the races are over, and I start coming down the thing, and she starts coming out, and she's Everywhere now, she's halfway up. She's gonna—if she falls, she's gonna shut down the auditorium for an hour. What do I do? Did I step out of the way and get around her? Oh, the corn dog drunk lady! No, I put my arm around her, held her, said, "Come on now, one step at a time." We went down a step at a time. She was so drunk that by the time we got to the nine steps, I was feeling woozy. Give <laughs> me a bite of a corn dog too. Can't go wrong with that. <clears throat> I put my arm around her, took her by the arm, walked her down the stairs. I looked over and Jamie and looking at me like, "What are you doing? This woman's gonna puke all over you." I walked her down the steps, one at a time. Come on now, take it easy. She's, I mean, and she's a big lady. She's, you know, and I'm afraid she's gonna fall. I mean, these things are steep, you know, and they're not very stable anyhow. And she's very, and I'm helping her down. We get, I said, well, now one more step, one more step, one more step, and then she just went onto the railing. And I just. Now, in New York City, they'd have just said, ah, get down the stairs. (laughs) I learned very early in life going to New York City. That's why they remind me of so many Christians that once had it, now they don't have it. Because in New York City, if you want directions, here's the way you do If you ever go to New York City, here's what you do. If you get lost in New York City and you're trying to find where you want to go, here's how you do it. Go up to somebody that looks like they know, been around New York City, looks like a New Yorker. You can tell them. And say this, hi, I'm visiting here. Could you tell me how to get to the Statue of Liberty, or should I just go drop dead? <laughs> tell them the line they're going to give you back before. Because okay? <laughs> you ain't going to get anything nice. You ain't to, I mean, I can't even repeat some of the things they'll tell you in New York City. They don't want you to. They don't care whether you You can wind up in Hudson Bay and the river as far as they're concerned. They don't care. And they remind me of Christians at one time, had the power of God, the contrast is so great from what they once were to what they are now, to how they love God, to now that they don't care anything about it. Oh, New York Christians, ever been them? Ever seen them? You see, ladies and gentlemen, you have had lessons on trying the spirits. And I'm telling you, these two spirits, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the world, you may be good, you may be real good, you may be you may be razor sharp, keen, and fine. You may just be as slippery as you could get, but you will not get around those two spirits, and they'll go together. Want a simple lesson? In, in, in simple lesson in it, go get two magnets. You turn them this way, they lock together. Turn them the other way, reverse the polarity. Can never get them together. That's you and God's spirit. If they don't, if their polarity isn't just right, it'll lock. If it's not, you ain't fooling anybody. You see, Bible Christianity runs through a system. That system is a system of unity. One book, one spirit, one mind, one church, one bond, one fellowship, one unity. This is why I told you New Year's Eve when we started to come through those things and I told you, the great, greatest thing you'll ever learn, God divides, then he adds. The devil multiplies, then he divides. Simple formula. Learn it. God divides. First thing he did when you got saved, he divided your soul from the spirit. You know what he did then? He added the blessings of God into your life. The next thing he did was divided you from the world. And when he divided you from the world, he gave you a new family. First, next thing He did is divided you from the old garbage you used to read, and He gave you something good, an attitude to read. You see, God divides first, and then He adds. The devil, we learned from Solomon last uh, Thursday night, he multiplies. Where God divides first, then adds, the devil multiplies first, then he divides. You know what He multiplies? He multiplies all the things in your world. That's what He did with Solomon, remember? the horses, the women, the things from Egypt, the carved ivory, all of the great things that he imported in, what he knew what he wasn't supposed to, and he caused the people to go back to Egypt, back to the world. The Bible says clearly in that passage that, that he multiplied all those things to him. No, God divides first, then he adds to your life. The devil multiplies in your life, then he divides. You know what he divides after he multiplies? He divides you from the Bible. He divides you from God's Spirit. He divides you from the church. He divides you in time from your husband or your wife. He'll divide you in time from your kids. He'll divide you in time from your job. That's how he does it. You better learn that. Because the key is he wants to deceive you with that. And if you don't understand how to, how to try the spirits. We talked about Thursday night lordship, relationship, fellowship, and stewardship. The four areas that you're constantly building to in your life. Now let's look at these two very quickly. These two passages and we'll see how this thing. Two simple rules. At first it says this. You want to you get this in, in working in your life? Rule number one. Beloved, believe not every spirit. I have a simple rule in dealing with people. And yet I'll explain it, what I'm saying, I'm going to say here, I'll explain it in a second. I have a simple rule with people I work with in the ministry. I don't believe anything they say. I've heard every lie that there is to hear in 35 years of ministry. I don't believe anybody. Now, obviously, with explanation once we get into a working relationship in the ministry and all those things obviously you've proven yourself and i believe but somebody comes in off the street or somebody comes in here hey we've all been there how many times in the last two years have we dealt with people that said i want to do this i want to do that i want to do this i want to do that and then two days later they don't want to do anything i don't believe anything anybody tells me and i'll tell you what that's not a bad thing you say what you don't have any faith in people man you're getting smarter already Beloved believe not every spirit. Why? Because people deceive you. People will people people will people will deceive you. They will tell you one thing when they want to do something else and I don't believe anything they say. I mean it just doesn't. The rule is don't believe what they say. The the rule is watch what they do. Because in every case Part of trying the spirits, believing the spirits or not believing the spirits is watching what somebody, listening to what somebody says and then watching what somebody does. That's the key. We are so naive that because we want to believe people that we give them the benefit of the doubt in, and that is where we become vulnerable. Because we think, because they're saved, they wouldn't lie to us. Because they're saved, they wouldn't try to deceive me. Because, hey, let me tell you something. The rule stands, and it's a good one. It ain't my rule. It's the rule you better follow. Beloved, believe not every spirit. Somebody says, I love God. I want to work with people. I love the Bible. Watch and see if what they do matches up with what they say. I mean, somebody says, well, I love God, and I love this, and I love that, and I want to do this. And my question that you ought to ask them is found in another great principle, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Try the Spirit. Don't believe the Spirit. Somebody tells you what they're going to do, what they want to do, but they never do it. The question is this, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? You got to match up. What you say has to match up. With what you live. Old Mel Sabaka used to have an example. I, I, my father and the Lord, boy, I, I remember it so, so vividly. He told an illustration of how that in this narrow channel in, in the shipping industry, someplace on the East Coast, that ships had a very hard time getting into. He says that the, 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 the way they had lost so many ships in that channel. And that they had lost so many ships that went down that what they did is they orchestrated a system of lights that, as you were coming in, the lights appeared as three: one light here, one light there, one light there. As you maneuvered into the right position to come through the channel, the two lights went to, uh, the three lights went to two lights. And then as you got right in the right channel to come in and to safely come in, those three lights became one light. In other words, they were positioned that they had to line up. And when you were out of position, they didn't line up. And you saw three separate. But when you got in the right position, in the right place, to get in safely, those three things lined up in one. That's the way it is with your life and my life. There's some things that better line up. And if you don't line up and you line yourself up, you're going to get deceived. You're going to become shipwrecked. You're going to go, you gotta learn to, You got to learn to try the Spirit's. Now the first thing says, beloved, believe not every spirit. The second thing is, but try the spirits whether to be of God. single greatest aspect of God in the Bible is this. If, if you want the number one thing, the Bible does. The greatest aspect of God in the Bible is simply this. God never violates His own principles. Once He writes it down, it never gets violated. This is why I beat you senseless every time we're together. To learn Bible principles. Learn the principles of the Word of God. Get them in your heart. Get them in your life. Get them in your world. Put them on your little three by five cards. Get them down where you learn the principles because it's the, it's the Spirit of God in you, the principles in this book, that are going to line up and bear witness with the Spirit of the Word of God, the Spirit's in you, and the principles in the Bible that tells you, yes, this is right. No, this is wrong. No, this stinks. No, this is Okay. It works with unsaved people. It works with saved people. And let's face it, as a Christian, we have to make decisions every day of our lives. Some of those decisions will impact your relationship with God. How do you do you do that? You do that by, first of all, believing not every spirit. Second of all, trying those spirits. The Spirit of God bearing witness with your spirit that these things are in the Word of God and the way they need to go exactly the way it is. Now, I told you a little later on, a little earlier. I put myself under the same microscope. What's good for you is good for me. I'm not somebody up here and preaches one set of standards for you, another standard for me. That'll never work. No, no, no. I put myself under my own microscope. How many times have I told you that you're a fool if you just believe what I say? My goal for you is to take and check out everything that I say everything that I say. I wouldn't believe one thing that comes out of my mouth. If somebody said one time, you know how you can tell Bob's lying? No, how? His mouth moves. I'd ch- I check me out on everything. You see, as a pastor, I'm not accountable to any one person. I'm not accountable to any one person. As a pastor, I am accountable, accountable to this body. You keep me accountable. And as this church grows, so does my accountability to this church. I have to stay right on track with the Bible. Now, there's some guys in here, and I won't mention your name because I don't want to put you under the spotlight or I don't want to bearish you, but there's some guys in here that I meet with on a regular basis. One of the greatest things I appreciate about you is the fact that you don't let me say much of anything without, if you don't see it and understand it, calling me into question on it. Now, you don't nitpick me to death, and it's not goofy stuff where you're just looking for something all the time, but you're smart enough to know. And I really appreciate it. I got about five or six of you in here that I work with on a regular basis, and that when I teach something on Thursday night, or I lay something out, when you come over, and, 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 I, and I love the way you approach it, because you're, you, you don't, it's like, well, I don't want him to think that I'm questioning what he says. No, no, it's okay. You can question what I say. I'm not, I'm not thin-skinned about it. You can, you can sit down and you can say to me, Bob, I don't understand this. You laid this out. It's not that I don't believe it. I just want to understand. How did you get that? See? And that's exactly what, as you this church grows, and what I'm doing basically is painting myself into a corner. And I got some gals that do it too. I got some gals that they want to know everything about anything, like most women. And they just want to, they want to, they want everything, and they want to know what I'm saying. And what I'm doing is painting myself into a corner By allowing you to question me on anything I teach without getting defensive on it. Hey, it's fair game. I'm not accountable to any one person. I'm accountable to you, the body. And the more I teach you the Bible and the more you learn the Bible and the better you get with the Bible and the better you learn the Bible and the better you live the Bible, the better you keep me accountable that I won't get up here some morning and have a big old thing of Kool-Aid punch and have a little cup for everybody. Some of you would drink it no matter what it was. It wouldn't make any difference. I'm telling you, folks. Your spirit and the spirit of God, when I teach you the Bible, when I get this spirit that's in this book in you, and you already got the spirit because you're saved, and I have the spirit because I'm saved, it's like those three lights, brother, everything lined up. And the day that I'm preaching to you, that the things don't line up, that we got a problem. I put myself under the same thing as you. I'm no better than you. I am absolutely no better than you. I may be the pastor of this church, and I may be the responsibility of making the decisions and running it and getting the vision from God and translating it to you. But at the end of the day, I'm not not somebody up here that's unapproachable. I have to go by the same rules that you do. I don't have one set of standards for you and one set for me. I have made myself accountable to this body, taught you men and women everything I possibly can about the Bible. And you know what you're supposed to do with that? Keep me honest. You ought to. You know why? I sure keep you honest every Sunday. You shouldn't let me slide. You know why? I don't let you slide. It's a two-way street. That's what the Bible intended it to be. Our spirits bearing witness with one spirit. God's spirit bearing witness with my spirit. Trying the spirits to prove all things, the Bible says, through the unchanging principles of the Word of God. Now that's how it works. Now let me recap seven things out of here you want to have before we go. And we take this whole thing that I laid out and break it down into seven things you want to remember so you don't get deceived. Because people, bless their hearts, will deceive you. People will deceive you knowingly. Sometimes they'll try to deceive you unknowingly. But that's just the way it goes. And you have to be able to try the Spirit's. You have to be able to let the Spirit of God that is in you bear witness with God's Spirit that whatever you're deciding, whatever you're doing, is biblically right. And if you use the principles in the format that I've given you, you'll never, never, never be deceived. You may lose some friends, but you'll never be deceived. All right, rule number one. This is first and foremost. I'm going to say it again. I know you're sick of hearing it. The price of learning is repetition. Learn Bible principles. Learn Bible principles. Commit 2009 to a time in your life where you're going to learn Bible principles. Get something in you. Let's say I go home this afternoon and I turn my car on to go out and I'm driving down the road and a little oil light comes on in my car. And I really, you know, don't know much about cars. I've been driving around with my engine light on, it says check engine for two years, and it's still fine. So, you know, the oil light comes on, I figure I can get away with it. Well, I get down in the, the street, and all of a sudden I hear this, THING! My hood got a dent in it where a rod went right up through that engine. I open up the thing, and the smoke clears away, and I look down there, and I just said to myself, man, I just blew my engine. So I get it towed back down to the garage there, you know, and Monday morning I go down to the bank. I walk in there, beautiful bank. Wow, this is a great bank. Look at that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight tellers, all with money. I love this place. (laughs) I walk up to teller number one. I say, hi. My name is Bob Alexander. Well, Mr. Alexander, what can I do for you? Well, you know what? Oh, your name is Cindy. Cindy, let me tell you. You ain't going to believe this. Last Sunday, I was driving out to get me a Big Mac. My engine blew up my car. I took a it, it, toad down here to, to, uh, to, to Bob's site for it. Can't go to any place else. Bob site for <laughs> And they told me it's going to cost $3,000 to get it fixed. And so I'm here today because I need to get $3,000 from the bank. She said, do you have your account? I said, yes, I do. Here's my account number right here. And she goes back, to, you know, and she looks up to that thing and she says, Mr. Alexander, how much did you want? And I said, I need $3,000. She shows back, she says, well, I'm sorry. She says, uh, you only have you only have $4 on your account. <laughs> and I said, well, I know, but this is the bank. Got all kinds of money back there. Well, I was watching right here while you were doing a little deal on the thing over there. That woman gave this guy here, I counted out, nine, nine $100 bills. Now, if you gave him $900, I need 3000 She said, you don't understand. He's got the money on the account. I don't know what you've done with your money, Mr. Alexander, but... You only got four dollars here, and we can't give you we can't give you three thousand dollars when you only have four thousand dollars that you put in. Am I getting through to anybody here? You wonder why you have problems in your life, and you go to God and you can't get any answers. You wonder why you continue to struggle and struggle and struggle, and you scratch your head and say, "Well, why God won't God won't answer me?" The same reason the stupid woman at the bank won't give me my three thousand dollars. Do you actually think that when you get into a jam as a Christian, you just walk up to God and, like I did to tell her and say, Hey, God, I'm in a jam. Will you fix me up? God says, Sure, I'll fix you up. What do you got on the account? What principles have you put in your bank? You see, if you don't put any money in the bank, when you get in a jam, you can't get anything out of it. And when you don't put any principles in the account of your heart, and you don't build the Word of God into your heart. Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When you don't put the Word of God through the principles in your life and your heart, when you have a tough time in your life and you come up against something and you need to draw on that account, there's got to be something in there. Learn Bible principles. Learn Bible principles. It's invaluable. Number two. Not only do you need to learn Bible principles, ladies and gentlemen, but you need to learn to use Bible principles. Let God, who never violates His own principles, take the book written by the Spirit of God and match it up with your spirit, sealed by the Spirit of God, through His Spirit, which knows your heart and the book, and let Him lay out to you what is real and what is not real based on the principles in the Word of God. Did you notice the examples I gave you today, Micaiah? Don't think for a moment because somebody is saved or somebody is your friend or somebody is this that they won't, they won't get out of fellowship with God and try to lead you down, down the wrong path. Ahab wanted 400 people around him that told him what he wanted to hear. One of the first traits of people to get out of fellowship is they want to hang out with other people that are just like them. Birds of a feather flock together. Believe not every spirit. Bible says try the spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says prove all things Hold fast to that which is good. The fifth thing, don't get caught up in what they say. Always watch what they do. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? The sixth thing, you can't fake real Bible based Holy Ghost spiritual walk. You can never get together the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the flesh. You can't ever. And you can't fake it. The reason why so many of God's people get away with it because the people that they're around are dumber than they are. If you know Bible principles, if you know Bible principles, if you know Bible principles, it'll stand out just like that. I used to, years ago, when I lived in Ohio, Ohio had 100 million groundhogs. When I moved to Missouri in 1976, Missouri didn't have any groundhogs. Now they're everywhere. i got a couple living in my backyard. But in Ohio, they're everywhere. And farmers hate them because if you don't know anything about groundhogs, they dig holes down in the pasture and the cows come along, step in and break their legs. And so it was, farmers would love, farmers would love for you to come shoot groundhogs. And we had about three or four guys that worked together and we were all groundhog hunters. We all hunters, but we loved hunting groundhogs. And uh, we had rifles with scopes on them, you know. And one summer, in it, we had a competition who won the biggest shot, the biggest groundhog, and who shot the most groundhogs. And I ain't kidding. Every night after work, every night, if it wasn't raining in the summer, we'd be out hunting groundhogs. I had my favorite spot. I had a place that was Groundhog Hotel. I mean, there were more groundhog holes in there. And, and my farthest shot I ever made was 600 yards on a groundhog. And that didn't get him in the first shot. But that was so far away that you'd, you'd fire, and about a second later, the bullet would hit, and the groundhog would come down and look right back up. Because you could not hear the shot too far away. And the first time I fired, it went over here. So I moved it over there. First time I, the second time I fired, it went over behind him. But it was right in line with him. So I just dropped that sucker a little bit. Next time, I just spit him right over and got him. 600 yards. Paced it off. 600 yards. I never won it. I killed 128 groundhogs that summer. My buddy won it, killed 160. And, uh, but I, here's what I learned from that. I got so good that I could look at a cornfield. I could look at a wheat field. I could look at anything out there, and because I had spent so much time outside, hunting when I'm hunting, that I could tell a blade of grass from a groundhog standing up. I could tell, I could be at 400 yards, I could see a bush, and I could see a groundhog, and I could distinguish that's a bush and that's a groundhog, where if I would have never done that, it looked like two bushes. I didn't need a pair of binoculars. I had done it so long, been so involved with it become, as the Indians used to say, one with the groundhogs. I had, I, I, had, I had just done everything, day after day after day. I could, I could see them, I could smell them, I could tell, I knew their antics, I knew everything about them. My point is this, you need to be that way with the Bible. You get the biblical principles where you live in that book every day, you stay in that book every day, and you, you, those principles work for you every day, and you get in that book, and you stay in that book, and you, it, and you stay with 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 it, you know what? Just like I could go out in the field, and I could look across 500 acres out there, and I could say to myself, there's one sitting, there's one standing right there. Somebody would say, well, no, that's, not, no, that's a groundhog, give me binoculars. Yep, he's got his head just above the clovers. He's eating in the clover field you can say, that ain't right. I see that red flag went up. Red flag's up. Red light's on. Warning, warning, warning. Deceiving in process. Deceiving in process. (laughs) It all is where you spend the time developing your senses. You know, as human beings, we have five senses. Trying the spirits and the spirit bearing witness with your spirit Here's the sixth sense, which you always hear about. In the supernatural world, it's the supernatural. Oh, you know, I saw a vision and, you know, all these things. No, 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 none of that stuff. The sixth sense is only given to a Christian who steps outside the natural and lives in the supernatural and through that book, so he won't be deceived. God gives him a process that he can try the spirits, bear witness with the spirits, that we know if the things are really of God or not. That's your sixth spiritual sense. You ought to use it as a Christian. It's the most valuable thing you have if you're going to ever work with people. It's the absolutely paramount thing you have got to have from keep from being deceived. It's what that person saying to me or what they're doing or how they're acting or what they're going through. Is that the way a Christian ought to do it? Don't go with what they say. Watch what they do. Then the last thing. First Corinthians 8.3 For if any man love God, the same is known of him. If you love God, it shows. You don't have to read a billboard. You don't have to go get your 25-pound King James Bible. You don't have to wear a 60-pound cross around your neck. If you love Him, and He's in you, and you're in Him, and you're walking in the Spirit of God, it's apparent. And by the same token, if any man doesn't love God, it shows just as apparently. Why? Because you can't fake. I'm going to leave you with this. You can't fake a true, spiritual, Holy Ghost-filled walk with God. You may be good. You may be slippery good. You may be certifiably good. But you can't fake that. Because that is a basis of the Spirit of the flesh versus the Spirit of God. And they'll never get together. Every head bowed, every eye closed.